0: Church, good to be with you all today. I uh, was thinking about how, just like every year, it seems like it comes quicker and quicker. Happy Thanksgiving week. Is it too early to talk about Christmas? There's a little stress on some faces right now as I said that. Apologies. it's never too early to talk about our Christmas Eve services. As you walked in, you'll notice that there's a bunch of these things outside. You can also hit that QR code on the back of the seat in front of you for more information. But we've got four services this year. First is on Christmas Eve Eve. That's at 7 o'clock. And then on Christmas Eve itself... 2 3 30 and 5 we've got a really special program for the kids called Journey to Jesus as well and then uh, the way that things fall this year is a bit interesting because the day after Christmas is Sunday and so what we're going to do is we're going to have one service at ten thirty, and that's going to be a family style service so if you've got friends and family in town you want to invite them we'll fill the place up it's going to be great. A couple months ago, we wrapped up, or we were in the middle of our bigger, smaller, deeper vision series. And really, essentially, the heart of it was about expanding or enlarging our influence for Jesus Christ across the valley. No better way to do that than to invite someone to a Christmas Eve service. You know, research shows that there's a high probability that if you personally invite someone to come with you, they will say yes. So, During the week, we're going to equip you guys more with all kinds of stuff through social media that you can push out there as well. So, over the last couple of weeks, we've been opening up the scriptures, and we've been studying what the Bible has to say about gratitude, and we've learned that uh, Christians are in a unique situation in life because we are called to be thankful, and we can actually show gratitude even in the midst of our own personal pain and suffering. Maybe, uh, well, no doubt, you've heard life described as being full of highs and lows. Kind of like a roller coaster. Someone would say, how's life going? Well, you know, it's like a roller coaster. You got highs and you got lows. You have your joys and you have your sorrows. As I get older, I think what I've come to realize is life is actually not so much like a roller coaster. It's more like two rails of a track that run parallel, side by side. One is labeled joy, the other is labeled sorrow. And at any point in your life, You've got a measure of both. So even in those moments where you're really joyful and happy, there's still something in the background that causes you to grieve. And in those moments of deep grief and sorrow, there's something in your life that gives you reason to celebrate and have joy. So it's, it's not so much a roller coaster. It's more like two rails of a track. And for the Christian, the most beautiful part about it is that both of those rails lead to a glorious future. So let me tell you what we're about to read. This guy named Peter was an early follower of Jesus Christ. And he's writing to a group of Christians in the first century AD and they're struggling. They're struggling because the world is pressing in around them. At this time, Nero is rising to power. He will become well known for his creativity in torturing Christians. Very hostile environment. In the midst of this, Peter writes with a very pastoral heart. And he says, I know it's difficult. Uh, The culture that you live in is not for you. It is very much against you. It's pressing in around you. In fact, we learn that some people were falling away from the faith as a result of this. He writes this as an encouragement. And essentially what he does is this. He takes his hand, places it under your chin, and he says, look up. Look up, Christian. You will not make it. You will get ground down if you don't have an eternal perspective. This is not all there is. How do we know that? He's gonna press in with some hardcore evidence. He's gonna speak to your spirit. He's going to change your paradigm. The holidays can be especially gnarly for a lot of people. You know that more people actually look forward to the holidays ending than starting? Why do you think that is? Because it can be brutal. The people that you're around that are supposed to love you the most are the people that hurt you the most. Peter's going to speak to your soul this morning in a unique way. I love how the Bible is written. It's so sober. It it doesn't sugarcoat anything. It addresses the fact that even Christians live life with pain and heartache and setbacks. Very often they are the recipients of unjust treatment simply because they choose to follow Jesus Christ in a world that is mixed up. Paul knew this really, really well. In fact, he writes this in Second Timothy chapter 3. He says, you, however, have followed my teaching. Not everybody has, but you have. My conduct my aim in life, you followed my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions. And you followed me in my sufferings. And he says, do you remember what happened to me in Antioch and Iconium? These two cities where as I preached the message of Jesus, I was run out of town. And then he mentions Lystra. What happened to Paul in Lystra is that the people... Uh, were so opposed to his message about Jesus correcting all that was wrong in their lives, fixing the dysfunction that they were born into, the d- dysfunction they had between their creator God, Paul was, was pointing people toward Jesus as the one who fixes all of that stuff. And the people are like, shut up. You know, it's kind of like, stop telling us that there's anything wrong with us. Sound familiar? and they pick up rocks, and they stone them, and they leave them for dead. But you know, the man of God, the woman of God, doing the will of God is invincible until God calls him or her home. That's why he says, the Lord rescued me from them all. And then this summary statement, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We don't live under (laughs) Uh, a a crazy dictator like uh, Nero who is torturing Christians, but there is obviously a very real sense that we live in a culture that is um, becoming more and more hostile to a biblical ethic and morality, without a doubt. Um, You know, there's a point in human history where it says that everybody did what was right in his or her own eyes, That is a crazy world in which to live. Can you imagine that? Right and wrong is like beauty. It's in the eye of the beholder. And the world became so undone that God says, we need to have a restart. What was the root cause? It was a rejection of God and his will for people. And so they did whatever they wanted to. Certainly there is a rejection of the authority of God's word in our own time. And by the way, you know this, is, this does sometimes creep into the church. I was having a conversation with a very bright uh, young adult. He's in his mid-20s, and he describes himself as a Christian, uh, and yet he doesn't believe in the a- a- authoritativeness of the Bible. He doesn't believe the Bible is authoritative, but he refers to himself as a Christian. So I said, well, you know, let's just let's tease this out a little bit. Where do you get your concept of Christianity and even God? Well, I get it from the Bible. Mm-hmm. So essentially what's happening is picking and choosing different parts of the Bible and deciding for himself uh, what's applicable. Isn't this really what, what, what's being done is taking the words of God, filtering them through himself, making himself God, making himself the one who de- will determine what parts are right and wrong and then applying it to himself and living out his own truth. The challenge with that is the Bible transcends your truth. One day, your truth is going to be exposed for what it really is when Jesus returns. And as sincerely as you have held your truth position, it's all going to be exposed for what it is when Jesus returns. Additionally, there is a sense that progressive Christianity is making no difference in the world at all. Why? Think of it this way, and this is what I explained. When Jesus came on the scene, he spoke profound words and the people were drawn. They're like, we want to know what this guy has to say. And he healed people, he fed people. Uh, I mean, question. Why would you want to kill a guy that does that? Why would you want to kill him? All he did was care about people. He gave his entire life for people, serving people, and then they nailed him to a cross. Why? Why did they do that? It was his message, and he was crystal clear, and he wouldn't back down. Essentially, this is Jason's paraphrase of the words of Jesus, but he said, the world is jacked up because of sin in the human heart. And very much like in our own time, people were like, Oh, I'm not so sure that I want to hear that. I'm not so sure that I want to hear that. And Jesus was speaking truth, and he was speaking it graciously, and the people didn't want to receive it, and they crucified him. And so what's happening now in many churches is there is a progressive form of Christianity that makes no difference. See, the Bible refers to Christians as strangers in the world. A stranger is someone who's unfamiliar. You might be in parts of the valley where you're like, I've never been in this neighborhood. I'm a stranger here. What you're saying is it's unfamiliar to you. So when the Bible says that Christians are called to be strangers in the world, what that means is that there are things about the world that should be unfamiliar to us. The author of Hebrews puts it like this. In your thinking, be mature. But when it comes to evil, be immature be like a child who's very innocent because that child, the innocence of a child means that they're inexperienced in things. So there are things in this world, evil, that Christians should look at and go, that is unfamiliar to me because I don't participate in that. So now the question is, how unfamiliar is the world to you? If you're like, oh man, the world's super familiar to me because I participate in this, this, is, and all of a sudden the words of scripture are pressing in on you a little bit and, and causing you to think, well, is the Bible a source of authority in my life? By the way, <laughs> there, is no, there is no literature that comes close to the power, influence, and uniqueness of the Bible. There is no other uh, piece of faith literature that comes close to the Bible. Just in terms of what this book contains, fulfilled prophecy alone blows everything else out of the water and then when you add to that the words of Jesus, what he came to do, his resurrection the overwhelming evidence historical evidence for the resurrection nothing comes close to the Bible, nothing, don't let anybody fool you not the Bhagavad Vida, not the Quran nothing comes close to the Bible and yet uh, many today even within churches minimize its authority we all end up placing ourselves in a position of authority over the Bible or under the Bible. And there's a big difference between the two. So, as Peter writes, he's wanting to encourage these believers, and what he's going to do is use the plan of God to do so. He's gonna change your perspective. He's gonna lay down some essential truths that will turn your suffering into gratitude. You're like, what? Is that actually possible? First Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's writing to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And then he's going to name these places where people have been dispersed. The Jews refer to it as the diaspora. Sounds like, like dispersion. That's where we get our word, dispersion. They're dispersed because of the persecution that took place. So therefore, they're in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. All this happens now. Look at this. Elect Exiles dispersed according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Love it. He introduces himself as an apostle. The world is so wrapped up in identity. Uh, We live in an identity culture. Uh, identity is found literally in a million different places today in our culture, in our society. And this is great, though, because Peter says, hey, let me just share with you my identity. Here's how I describe myself. I'm an apostle. The word apostle means messenger. I carry the message of Jesus. And my message about Jesus is this, Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Don't laugh when I say that. Some people aren't aware of that, and that's okay. All right? Christ means Messiah. So what he's saying is, I'm a messenger explaining to people that Jesus is the Messiah. If you read the Old Testament, you'll see a lot of prophecies pointing to a forthcoming Messiah, where he would be born, Bethlehem, how he would be born, to a virgin. His physical suffering and death by crucifixion on a cross prophesied 700 years before it happened, before people practiced crucifixion. Isaiah 53, you read the details. So so he's saying, look, The evidence is there when we look at it. it, All signs point to Jesus. He is the fulfillment of of the Messianic prophecy. So my message here, my identity is I'm a messenger of Jesus Christ. And I've got some really solid ground to stand on. So I make no apologies about it. And then he says this is to the elect. Now, all of you first uh, your seminary students, man, you guys are so darn cute. You love words like this, election foreknowledge, predestination. So let me just tell you, in this context, I want to draw three things out that are important, keeping it in Peter's context, because what he does is quite cool. He describes the work of the Godhead or the Trinitarian Godhead when it comes to salvation. All three play a part. First, he says, the Father has chosen you for salvation. How did God choose? According to Romans chapter eight, God chooses according to his foreknowledge. Important to know that this foreknowledge had nothing to do with what was inside you. It's not like Jesus, uh, you know, looked down, it's not like God looked down the quarter of time and was like, you know, Jason, he's a pretty good guy. I want him to be on my team. It was in spite of who we are that God chooses us, the role of the Father. Then he mentions the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. The word sanctified means to be set apart. Jesus said that the Spirit will guide you into truth. He will lead you. When we act on the truth, we become sanctified, set apart for God's purposes. In John chapter 3, Jesus is having a conversation with the Pharisee Nicodemus. That's the whole point of it. Basically, he says it's the spirit that draws you in. Then he mentions the work of Jesus, specifically the sprinkling of his blood. What is that talking about? Well, the Bible is very clear in telling us that the wages of sin is death we're all sinners. God has to, has to deal with sin. Otherwise, he wouldn't be just. So instead of us and shedding our blood, blood which was what was due, Jesus pays the penalty for us. That's called the atoning work of Christ. So it's all there in, in this concept of election. Literally, he lays it down in about two sentences. All of it's done, he says, make no mistake, by God's great mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserved. We, we deserved to be on the cross, but Jesus took our place. He continues, verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. That's the word people are crying out for today. Hope through the resurrection, that's where hope is found, of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading. Kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter says the source of Christian hope, it's in one place, in one place alone. And that is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, nowhere else. It's the idea that hopelessness went out with the resurrection. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, he has power over death. He can extend that power over death to you. This is what sets Jesus apart from all other faith leaders. You can visit the graves of Muhammad and Confucius. You can see the bones. You can visit the ashes of the Buddha. But you will not find the DNA of Jesus. Why? It's not here. By the way, you read the New Testament accounts. They're incredibly honest. Just like painfully, brutally honest with this resurrection thing. Because when Jesus dies... His followers are down and out. It isn't until they see the resurrected Jesus that they're like, okay, he did what he said he was gonna do. There's a story about two of his disciples walking on this road to Damascus, and they're like, man, we thought Jesus was the Messiah, but uh, they killed him. They killed him. And then he makes all of these post-resurrection appearances, and you see a group of men moved from, there was the women who were the first evangelists, the women who believed in him first, and then the guys, when they saw, they're like, okay, now we believe. Even Jesus' own brother, his half-brother James, didn't fully believe that he was the Messiah until he saw Jesus resurrected. So when a person places their faith and trust in Jesus... Peter says they're destined to receive an inheritance. I don't know if you've ever received an inheritance before, but this is an, an inheritance unlike any that you will ever get. During our Bigger, Smaller, Deeper uh, vision, you know, we, we talked about this. We talked about the crazy fact that uh, as much as we think we own what we own, <laughs> there's going to come a day when every dollar you have is going to be in someone else's bank account. Your house is in your name right now. Someday it's gonna be in somebody else's name. You cannot take it with you, but there is a sense that you can pass it on. There's an inheritance that is imperishable. So what is the Christian response to all of this? Verse six, he says in this, in your trials, and in your salvation, you rejoice. But let's be honest, right now it's kinda hard. For a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved, Christian. You're grieving right now. Every person in this room carries some measure of grief. Why is that? Well, if you can take your suffering up into God's purposes, it makes all the difference in the world. You have been grieved by various trials. I'm going to geek out for a second on this Greek word. I think I've shared this before. This is the same Greek word that James uses when he talks about the various trials. The Greek word is poikolos. Now, the doctors in this room will correct me. I'm gonna to try to get this right. Poikilocytosis. am I saying that right? Poikilocytosis is a condition wherein blood cells are irregularly shaped, it's not, it's not healthy. Right? You have a healthy-shaped blood cell. You can see it under, under a, a microscope. And then you, you have blood cells that are irregularly shaped, and that's not healthy. It's not good for you. They're different sizes as well. And this, this can lead to some real problems. Some word etymologists believe that this Greek word poikilos, is where we get our English word polka dot, which kind of makes a lot of sense because kind of like those misshaped blood cells, polka dots come in all different sizes and colors. And so what he's saying is, in life there will be all kinds of trials. There may, may be a trial that comes from a temptation. There may be a trial that, that you bring on yourself because of your own misguided actions. There may, that may be the kind, of, kind of, of, of trial that just doesn't go away. It's like persistent. There may be a trial that involves the loss of a relationship. And those are really really hard. They come in all colors and sizes why so that the tested genuineness of your faith see there's a testing of your faith in it to test the genuineness how do you know your faith is genuine you don't know until you start to get squeezed in you never know what's inside somebody until you start bumping them a little bit until they start getting rust up and then what happens the contents begins to spill out Your face should be more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. So back in the day, we we use all different kinds of chemicals to refine and purify gold now, but back in the day, they really had one thing, intense heat. So gold melts at a little less than 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And as you heat up the gold, what happens is impurities rise to the top. And you can scrape those off. And as they heat gets turned up, more impurities come. You turn up a little bit more, and more impurities come. This is why, at times, you, will, you may even literally say to yourself, you know the heat is really on in my life. <laughs> I mean it feels like a pressure cooker. You take those experiences up into God's purposes and it changes everything about you and your perspective. Testing of the genuineness of your faith because in those moments you're being asked a very important question. What do you believe about God? Do you, isn't that the story of Job? Job has all this stuff, he gets it taken away and Satan says the only reason why he likes you is because you give him stuff, take it away. God says, "All right, we'll we'll go down this road. And Job ultimately remains faithful but he's asking questions. God, what's going on? God, what? Oh, help me understand. May be found all this testing, this heat, so that you may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus came once; that means He's coming again. If He come, if He came once, count on it. He's coming back again. Uh, one of my things with the book of Revelation is that sometimes Christians can't see the forest for the trees. What I mean by that is they get caught up in understanding the tree of uh, apocalypse, right? Like I gotta understand what these trumpets mean, right? I I gotta understand what these visions mean. The full title of the book is The Revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the forest. In other words, you read the book to understand what is it about Jesus that we formerly didn't know that's now being revealed? It's huge! First time Jesus comes, what's being revealed? Humility, gentleness, suffering servant. The revealing of Jesus through the book of Revelation is not quite like that. And Jesus comes back and he's riding a freaking war horse. And he's got this, this either a sash or a tattoo on his thigh that says king of kings. And he's got a sword dipped in blood. And everybody's like, I like the baby Jesus better. <laughs> you can't have one without the other. Because see what happens at the revelation of Jesus Christ when he comes back? Meanwhile, there's this testing that goes on. So you haven't seen him, but you love him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him, and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, that is, the salvation of your souls. You know, nowhere in the Bible are Christians described as victims. Nowhere. If you see yourself as a victim of life circumstances, you need to change your perspective. All throughout the scripture, Christians are in fact described as victorious because of our relationship. With Jesus, and yet suffering is necessary. So, when tragedy occurs, people are very quick to ask the question, Where is God? If you read through the Psalms, brutally honest, David has a really, really difficult few years. And this causes him to question God. And I love this because you don't wrestle with and question what you don't believe to be real. So God is very real to David in his questioning. It's okay. You just have to be careful. You don't become overly critical. It's okay to question God and say, God, help me understand, right? James says, "Ask for wisdom. But the people of God have always been called to live by faith, even Old Testament prophets. He goes on, verse 10. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to, to be yours, that's the grace through Jesus, they searched and they inquired carefully. Even the Old Testament prophets, they had this... This inquisition going on, trying to figure out what was being said. They were inquiring what person, who is this person, and, and at what time the Spirit of Christ in the prophet was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ, Messiah, and the subsequent glories. See, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but You. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel, the good news to you, by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels are scratching their head longing to look. Here's what he's saying. Even the Old Testament prophets, as the Spirit of God spoke to them, they're writing stuff down. Hey, here's a word about the Messiah regarding his coming. So they write it down, and then they took a step back, and they're like, what does this mean? Who is it? When will he come? It's the way I've described it is like this. They had the pieces to the puzzle, but they didn't have the picture on the box. And what he says is, as they were scratching their heads, trying to figure out who was he writing about? Who's going to be born in, in Bethlehem, this podunk town? He's going to suffer Isaiah 53, this horrible death. Who is he talking about? It's going to be from the line of David. This is why in the New Testament, New Testament authors authors open up their writings. And what do they do? They give you a genealogy of Jesus Christ. Why? Because the whole thing is based on the Old Testament, a forthcoming Messiah through the line of David. So bam, they hit you right in the face with. If you want to question Jesus, let's start with his genealogy. How does he arrange that if he's not for real? So all these facts are getting laid down all throughout the New Testament and it's like super hard to ignore. People ignore it because of what's in their own hearts, by the way. If you're open-minded and open-hearted, all of a sudden you're like, (gasps) the blinders are taken off and you're like, this is legit. This this commands my attention. Prophets were having a hard time understanding it and what Peter says is, they were actually writing about the very thing that you got to receive and experience because you all live on this side of the cross. They could only hope and dream of experiencing this Messiah. They died. Scratching their heads, trying to put the puzzle pieces together. The cross is the picture on the puzzle box, and you all have received it. Then he says, you know, angels are a higher, creor- higher order created being. Only humans are created in the image of God, not angels. But angels are pretty slick creatures. And they're kind of going, oh, man, we need to understand this ourselves. So they're looking into it. Angels long to look. So let me end with this. I know I've dropped a lot on you. Maybe you've been coming to Illuminate for a while and the pieces are starting to come together for you. That's exactly what God wants for you. What do you do with that? You respond to it. You receive it. See, if you haven't embraced Jesus and what he did as the fulfillment of all those scriptures, all those prophecies, what he came to do, full of grace and truth, and you very much feel like you are familiar with the world and you're twisted up in sight because of it, Jesus came to set you free from that. And what you do is you step into it. You step into it, you don't jump through hoops. Bible says that salvation is a free gift of God. See, it just keeps getting better. I think it was Martin Luther who said, it's the greatest gift you'll ever receive. You give Jesus all your junk, all your dysfunction, All the wrongs you've committed, he takes it upon himself, and in exchange you get eternal life. Good deal for you. Why would you turn that down? Pride, ego, unwillingness to believe. What I'm saying to you is throw it all off. Exchange what you have now for something 10 times better. I'm gonna have you bow your heads and close your eyes. If that's the desire of your heart, you simply proclaim it to God. You simply say, Jesus, I accept what you did on my behalf. A sinner in need of a savior, all of humanity is at the foot of the cross. Christians just happen to rally around the savior. Father, I pray for those that you are drawing even now Lord, that they would be led on this journey of transformation for your glory and for their good. Father, for those of us that, you know, (laughs) getting together with family can be especially stressful and difficult, God, I pray that uh, you would give us a new perspective, even through our tears, that you would help us to see Eternity and glory and the inheritance. Ultimately hearing from Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. The heat is up right now in many of our lives. God, may we not waste it, but use it. Father, I'm so grateful for every person in this room. You love them. Jesus died for them. This church loves them. Lord, in the end, we want to make Jesus famous all for the glory of God. And God's people said, Amen.